Good evening. I want to pray real quick before we start this off. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your church. It is such a blessing for you to have created us to need community like this so that we would find each other and find you within that. God, thank you for tonight specifically that we could all be here. Um, Lord, bless the time. And uh, yeah, if you want me to say things that aren't in my notes, whisper them to me. If you want me to miss something, make me miss it. May your will be done tonight, God. We love you. Amen. Start tonight off, I want to tell you a story. Um, it was reported by the BBC in January 2011 about a baby girl born in England. Uh, her name is Namachi Ihegboro, and we've got a slide up here for you. Um, beautiful little baby girl, long, curly, blonde hair. Can't really tell from that. Blue eyes. Beautiful, fair-skinned little baby. Uh, this is a picture of Namachi with her parents, perhaps. There we go, with her biological parents. Beautiful pale-skinned baby, beautiful dark-skinned parents. This is how the birth of Namachi Yehegboro came about. Blue-eyed, blonde Namachi, whose name means beauty of God in the Nigerian couple's homeland, has baffled genetics experts because neither her mother Angela nor her father Ben have any mixed-race family history where if pale genes had skipped generations and then popped back up later, that could have explained her appearance, but now cannot. And genetics experts have concluded she is not albino. Her mom, Angela, 35, of Woolwich, South London, beamed as she said, she's beautiful, a miracle baby. Her dad, Ben, a customer service rep, admitted, we both just sat there at the birth just staring at her. He added, well, actually, the first thing I did was look at her and say, what, what the flip? Angela said, she's beautiful, and I love her. She's a miracle. But still, what on earth happened here? Ben was so shocked when Namachi was born, he even joked, uh, is she mine? He also stressed, my wife is true to me. But what's with the long, curly, blonde hair? We both just sat there after the birth, staring at her for ages, not saying anything. That awkward silence, that uncertainty beneath the humor. Is the child mine? Is my wife faithful? Can I believe what, what she's telling me is the truth when, as far as I know, all the evidence points to only one logical conclusion, and that's no? What do you do with that? Today is the first Sunday of Advent. It's the season in which we remember the miraculous birth of Christ, God's entry into the world in human form, an event that changed history forever. He did it in sort of a peculiar way, but not a way that seems all that peculiar to us now. I mean, we do this every year, right? And uh, the hazard of that frequency is that sometimes a story you hear a hundred times becomes just a story, just facts. And uh, we know the script, so when the scene unfolds the way it should, no one's surprised. In fact, knowing the script so well gives us facts that change the way we apply our logic to it. We know the story so well that it just makes logical sense that even though Mary had never slept with a man, she carried and delivered a baby anyway. Outside the narrow context of this one story, we take pregnancy as immediate evidence that certain things have happened. That makes sense. That's logical. I want to tell you another story from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, 
But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because you will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Don't let this be just a fact that you've heard a hundred times. Try to strip the familiarity away and see it through Joseph's eyes. First, to do that, we need to understand what engagement meant. In verse 18, we, uh, in verse 18, we see that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. They were engaged. And in verse 19, Joseph is planning to divorce her. In that time in culture, engagement was a lot closer to marriage than it was to dating. Um, there was a formal contract drawn up between the two families that would, could be broken only by formal divorce. They called each other, these fiancés, husband and wife. And even though there was to be no sexual relationship yet, if one of the betrothed were to sleep with another, it was called adultery. So when Joseph starts talking about divorce, even though they're not fully married, understand this is not something he would undertake lightly. One thing I learned when studying this passage over the past week or two is that he wasn't contemplating divorce just for personal reasons. I mean, yes, I'm sure he felt confused and betrayed. Like I said, pregnancy is immediate evidence of sex, right? You don't just, you know, catch conception like the flu, you know. Oh, you doing, Mary? Oh, you know, just caught a, mild, caught a mild case of pregnancy, you know. You know, get better in about nine months. I mean, these things just don't happen, and Joseph knows that. And that's got to hurt. I mean, when they arranged the marriage, his parents must have investigated and checked Mary out and found her to be a woman of virtue, of strong character. And now, as far as Joseph knows, one of such disappointment. I mean, as a logical man, what can he think? Nothing but that she wasn't the virtuous woman he thought she was. So yes, I'm sure his feelings played into this. But the thing I learned recently was that even if he hadn't felt hurt or angry, he still would have had to divorce her. Biblical scholars tell us that divorce was essentially mandatory in cases of adultery. It was understood that the impurity of it just in many ways dissolved the marriage, made it meaningless or dishonored in a lot of respects. You had to. To be obedient to their interpretations of God's law, the facts that Joseph had at the time, as far as he knew, he had to divorce Mary. The only question was how. And in this, he had some freedom. See, Mary's pregnancy was not yet public. It was early enough that people didn't know yet. And that was a good thing, since women charged with adultery could be stoned to death. You might remember the story in John 8, where Jesus, as a grown man, uh, saves a woman from being killed in this manner. Her Pharisee accusers stand around, stand around saying, well, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women, which, according to Deuteronomy 22:23 does. If, while Mary was betrothed, it could be proved that she had slept with another man, then the law prescribed, demanded, that she and the other man be stoned to death. 
even though letting that happen would have been fully in line with the law, even though it would have been righteous according to the only guidance that he had, Joseph didn't want that for her. He knew what he had to do, but he wanted to somehow be merciful as he did it because Joseph was a righteous man. As far as he knew, there was exactly one way to accomplish both of these ends. Private divorce, with as few as two witnesses, was legal. And it seemed like the only option to both maintain Joseph's obedience to the law and protect Mary from personal harm. Joseph had three options. Public divorce, private divorce, or staying with her, even though she seemingly had committed adultery against him. The first two were just. They were right, according to the commandments of God given through Moses. The last one obeyed God's desire for mercy, which we know about from the prophet Hosea, among many others. This means Joseph had three options, and none of them were wrong or unrighteous. Sounds like a lot of decisions that we have to make, right? I mean, most of our tough calls in life aren't neat and tidy little morality fables with clear-cut right and wrong answers now or in first-century Palestine. So how does Joseph choose? It's really remarkable to me what this choice, or how this choice, comes from Joseph's character. He was planning to divorce her, which tells us he was convinced that she had betrayed him and God through this adultery, and yet he chose the most compassionate possible means because his character was righteous. And that righteousness, that dedication to knowing and obeying God's will as best you can, given your knowledge at the time, is the key to recognizing God when he speaks up to show you the facts you thought you didn't need. I thought I had all the facts once. Uh, back in 2008 specifically, it was my first year in Denver, uh, and I and two others had just left home in Illinois rather speedily uh, to live for the first time somewhere that wasn't my parents' house or a dorm room. I drove here in January over a thousand miles of icy roads and high winds in a 17-foot U-Haul with a high center of gravity watching, I think it was 23 cars in the ditch in Nebraska alone, uh, escaping death only by God's amazing mercy, because I don't really know how to drive a U-Haul. And once we arrived, I set up a three-bedroom apartment with two people that I thought I could count on as housemates. And I was wrong. It quickly became apparent I was the only one with a job and would probably be that way for a while. Uh, one couldn't keep a job and didn't seem to like me that much now that we were housemates, and the other worked for Walmart for a while before deciding that moving back to his bad home situation in Illinois was somehow less awful than working there, being broke, and knowing no one. So we left. I was alone, really alone, for the first time in my life. And I had this great big three-bedroom apartment that I was trying to pay for each month on a pharmacy tech starting salary. Uh, didn't move here with a lot of money, but it trickled away fast. I was staring down the barrel of an, evic an eviction in a city where I knew nobody. It was kind of like tightrope walking with no safety net. You know, I, I knew that if I fell, nobody was going to catch me, as far as I knew. It was right around that time that Scum found this place. The, uh, the staff at the time told us that they and the council had prayed about it and were unanimous, that this was where they believed God wanted us to be. And so we started the first building fund drive. I know many of you were here for that. You remember. I was pretty new to scum at that point and uh, not very deeply rooted. So it came as quite a surprise to me uh, when God started telling me to give a big chunk of money to the building fund. And it was not a surprise that I was happy about. You ever have those fully formed ideas that just show up in your head and aren't yours? 
Good. Uh, the ones that sound absurd to you, but you know, they make sense in the context of God's character. And they, they just won't go away until you listen. This was one of those. And I knew it was God's idea in part because it's not one that I would have put there. I thought this was a really bad idea, and I told him so. And we had these back-and-forth conversations that, you know, over a week or two, and, and they went something like this. God would say, hey, 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 Adam. I'd be like, what? He'd be like, you know what? I'd be like, I'm not doing it. He'd be like, you need to do it. I want you to trust me. I'd be like, no. He'd say, look. I want you to trust me, so give to this. I'm like, no, 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 no. Search my bank account and know it, Lord. I don't have enough to do this. You know all things, so you know a whole lot of zeros when you see them. Uh, and not after numbers, just zeros. Um, I bet this isn't even really you. I bet I'm somehow being guilted into this. I bet all I'm hearing is some moralized version of my own self-image where I'm the sacrificial hero and I save the day. And God's like, they need about half a million. You think you can save the day? I'm like, hmm. He's like, listen, I want you to give half a grand. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is a terrible idea. And besides, you want me to honor my lease, right? The agreement that I made that said I would pay that much every month to my landlord. And what about when I decided, and you know this, that I always give you 10% of whatever I make? Well, I wouldn't have any to give. You want me to honor that, right? And at this point, I'm thinking I can outsmart God, uh, and that never works. <laughs> and uh, God tires of my smartassery quite quickly. And just says, look, I'm the Lord your God. Give the money. I'm like, humph. And then I would sulk. And this, this pattern repeated for a little while. Uh, I mean, I'm hearing for, uh, from God, clearly, for the first time in years. And I'm sulking about it. Because as far as I know, this is insanity. Supporting God's work through tithing 10% is something that I choose to do. And paying my rent every month is something that I have to do. And uh, last I checked, both of them require more than $0 in the bank account. I mean, as far as I knew, 500 bucks minus 500 bucks does not equal rent. I mean, that's just basic logic. And I knew God was logical. I still do today. With all the facts I had available, as far as I knew, this was just a really bad idea. I presume it must have been much the same with Joseph. I mean, he already had his equivalent of my angry conversations with God. He had searched his knowledge of the scriptures. And keep in mind that at this point, Israel hasn't had, a, uh, hasn't had God speak through a prophet in longer than the United States of America has been a country. So if you want to know the will of God, the scriptures are where you go at that point. That's a given. He searches for what he knows to be true, and he applies his desire to honor both God and Mary. And out of the logic machine pops just one option, divorce her quietly. Logic's a handy thing, you know? I'm such an introspective, super logical guy that it can drive people crazy. My, um, my wife is very patient like that. But I figured out an awful lot of things using just basic deductive logic, you know, like syllogisms, like if A and B, then C. You know, you probably heard if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, well, then it's probably a duck. And unless you run into an awful lot of duck facsimiles in the course of your week, that's just good logic. Logic is great, but contrary to what I and a lot of people tend to think, it's not everything. I love G.K. Chesterton. Anybody else? I mean, in, in my mind, like, G.K. Chesterton is the one that they call in to cover C.S. Lewis's shifts when he calls in sick to the aphorism factory, and I love it. And I found this quote by Chesterton that's going to be up on the screen in a minute. Uh, it was published after his death, and it talks about this thought process that I and Joseph were presumably both struggling through. Logic and truth, as a matter of fact, have very little to do with each other. 
Logic is concerned merely with the accuracy with which a certain process is performed, a process that can be performed with any materials, with any assumption. On the assumption that a man has two ears, it is good logic that three men have six ears. But on the assumption that a man has four ears, it is equally good logic that three men have twelve. But the power of seeing how many ears one man possesses is not a logical thing, but a primary and direct experience, like a physical sense, like a religious vision. Logic, then, is not necessarily an instrument for finding truth. On the contrary, truth is necessarily an instrument for using logic. To put it briefly, you can only find truth with logic if you have already found truth without it. G.K. Chesterton writes a lot of really dense things, so I want to read part of that again. Logic is not necessarily an instrument by which you find truth, but truth is necessarily an instrument for the way you use logic. You can only find truth with logic if you have already found truth without or before or outside of it. I can only do ear math if, before applying the logic of math, I've had an experience, maybe sight or touch, that tells me that I and most people have two ears per capita. Um, only then can I apply logic and have it come up with something useful. Chesterton isn't saying that logic is bad, and believe me, neither am I. But what I'm saying is this. Logic is a machine that can only run on what you feed into it. And a lot of the time there's information we don't have because our thirst for knowledge is so easily placated by what the world calls the truth that we aren't on the lookout for the fuller truth of God. Joseph needed truth from God that surpassed the facts that he had right then. Last week, Mike Sayers mentioned the teaching from six chapters later in the book of Matthew. Keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. The verbs in those sentences are in a tense that I cannot pronounce that implies do it and keep on doing it. And every time Joseph, seeking guidance from God about this decision, racked his memory of the scriptures, he was pounding on the doors of heaven as if to scream, God, tell me who you are in this situation. Tell me how I can love you best with a choice I have. He was on the lookout for God's voice. He was listening for it. And true to God's unchanging character, he gave Joseph an answer, just in time. In verse 20, if we can go back to the, pa the uh, passage there. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Oh, well, okay. What the flip, as, you know, Benny Hegboro might say, as I would probably say, having a dream like that. But what does Joseph say? In verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Bam. Immediate obedience. As a righteous man well-versed in the word and ways of God, Joseph recognizes God's truth. He has what Chesterton called a primary and direct experience, in this case, a religious vision, which, much like reading, knowing, and internalizing the word of God, enables him to find God's truth and recognize it when he does. That recognition isn't particularly easy if you're new to following Jesus, or if you're like I was for a very, very long time, you know the word of God a lot less well than you think you do. It's not easy, and it's a lot easier, frankly, to just have a thought or a coincidence or a dream or a feeling, and, and without testing it for truth, just say, you know, I think God wants me to do this. The recourse would be, well, 
Think about it on your own and figure it out. Maybe talk to some folks, you know, sitting still with your eyes closed, talking to someone you can't see. According to the truth of the world, the limited truth of the world, that doesn't make sense. It's not logical. But if we know that there is a God who loves us, who wants a two-way relationship with us, who wants that, and who is faithful to answer, to open the door when we're knocking at it, then there's nothing more logical than prayer. Or take communion, which we're going to be doing in a couple of minutes. You know, the world might look at that as just some empty ritual saying, well, Jesus is, Jesus is dead. What are you doing that for? Because they don't know the truth that this is a thing of meaning an act of obedience when Christ said, remember me this way. I mean, heck, even the idea of following Jesus, generally speaking, goes against common logic. Limited truth says, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, diversify. You know, hedge your bets so that if one thing fails, the whole thing won't come crashing down and you won't be ruined. Yet God calls us to be totally sold out for him. You know, to give him your all so that you would be ruined if it doesn't work. That's part of the point. That's what commitment is. And that's the kind of passionate life, this passionate all-in way of living that he wants for you. And knowing the truth that God will never leave or forsake you, I can think of nothing more logical than giving your everything in pursuit of a beautiful life, of a righteous life, of these enormous plans that God has for you. Like Joseph did. If prayer is a thing that you want, that if you're going through something right now and you... You want to hear God's voice? In a little bit after the sermon, during the music, during communion, there will be folks back in what we affectionately term the prayer cave who will be willing to pray with you. So please, take advantage of that. That is one of these resources that you can use. Scum of the earth is a magnet for broken people trying to find God or trying to find their way back to God. So maybe you feel kind of distant from a guy who had it all together like Joseph. I mean, I know I did back in 2008. I'd grown up in church my whole life, you know, lived rightly for most of it, but about half a decade before then, uh, my life just went completely off the rails. Uh, By 2008, I was crawling out of the smoldering wreckage of some of the darkest years of my life, and I wasn't feeling especially solid before God. You know, I, uh, I didn't have Joseph's track record of righteousness or his crazy fast obedience. And when it came to selfless agape love, I, I was a newborn, you know, and, and a broken spirited one at that. But Psalm 51 tells us that a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, that you will not despise. Well, good. Because <laughs> that's all I had. My life was a mess, and I wanted to make it right. I heard God's voice in a recognizable way for the first time in a very long time. And even in my imperfect, combative, sophomoric way of responding to him, he accepted that obedience. Even though I wasn't knocking very well at the door, I was knocking at it, and he opened it up. Even when I was still sighing and mumbling, well, I'm going to trust there's a piece of truth that I don't know here, God, because uh, as far as I know, logic says moving $500 away means I'm going to get evicted for this. Grumble, grumble, grumble. The day I finally decided to obey what God had been telling me was the day that Scum's 24-hour prayer vigil kicked off down at the Scum offices at 11th and Broadway. Some of you remember that. I was scheduled to work late that day down at the pharmacy in Wheat Ridge, and so the plan was... Work till 11, then drive downtown to the scum offices and join up. I, uh, I walked into work, and my store manager greets me pretty close to the door, and with no trace of humor in his face, tells me, uh, Adam, I'm going to need to see you in the office. And I'm like, dang it. Like, that's the you're going to fire me voice. I don't know what I did, but apparently it was bad. 
And so I follow him to the office, and he closes the door behind me. And at this point, I'm like, oh, just shoot, Adam, what did you do? And Logic is saying, you're doomed. My boss turns around to look at me with that deathly grim face and says, so, um, Adam, I just wanted to, uh, to let you know, you, um, you won. What? And I can see the faintest trace of a grin starting to grow here. The company-wide customer service thing that they're doing this month, you, you won. I'm like, we were doing one? He's like, yeah, they had a drawing, and you won the grand prize. I'm like, well, what would that be exactly? And he says, you won $5,000 tax-free. I'm like, yes! God, you are awesome! This is crazy, but thank you. And I remember the thought appearing in my head afterward, consistent with what I have learned of him. Adam, I asked you to give something you thought you needed to survive so that you would learn your survival does not depend on you. It depends on me. The amount was significant, too, I realized later, because receiving 5000 made the 500 that I was planning to give into that tithe I said I wouldn't be able to do if I gave. <laughs> as far as I knew. God had the truth about my resources all along, even when I didn't. And God knew the truth about Mary's pregnancy all along, even when Joseph didn't. And in the meantime, Joseph was obedient to the law the highest truth he knew of godly obedience until God's revelation completed it. And when it did, Joseph sprang into action. Oh, that we would all be so quick to obey, knowing that we don't know every way God's going to work. Oh, that we would seek God's truth and defy the world's doctrine of this is just the way things are, deal with it. And that we would do it with humility, obeying as well as we know how, but never assuming that we know what is and isn't possible with our God. Blind faith isn't in the Bible, but what is, is making the leap. Weighing God's truth more highly than your own incomplete conclusions and assumptions, even if you don't have his truth just yet. May you devote yourselves to learning God's voice through the scriptures, through wise counsel, through prayer, pursuing him in every way you can. May you have the ears to recognize him when he speaks, and may you keep listening, like Joseph did. Amen.